There is no one-size-fits-all solution to education. And today, Ivy Flambaum, co-founder and dean of Flatiron School, talks about the invention of the coding boot camp and how he thinks about WeWork as a global campus now that Flatiron has been acquired by WeWork. If you want to know about all the different types of education that exist for you to break into tech with little or no debt, make sure you go to breakingintostartups.com slash webinar. And today, we're going to go in on outcomes-driven education, habits, the history of Flatiron School, um, how to pick coding languages to learn why startups use these languages, and the enterprise, and how corporations are realizing that it's important to build talent versus buy talent because um, even if you hire all the people that exist in that are graduating from college and in the existing talent pool is still not enough to fill the open positions, um, which is why apprenticeships are so important. And we're going to talk about this shift in thinking, not just locally, but also globally. And before going into this episode, I want to give a shout out to every single active listener to the podcast that has left a review on iTunes. We appreciate you. And we also appreciate the passive listeners as well and want to encourage you to join us in taking action and leaving a review telling your friends liking the page on facebook joining our community and without further ado let's break in growing up we're told that in order to be successful you need to be a banker a doctor or a lawyer that's what the gatekeepers want you to think but we're part of something bigger we're part of a technological revolution either you're at the table or on the table Getting the end. 10x. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars Podcast. Archer, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah. So we're here at WeWork Golden Gate in the heart of San Francisco. And we got our video crew here. And we're it's, we're on a we're at a WeWork, but it feels like we're in a movie set because of the beautiful decor and interior design and recently we started recording these amazing videos so you guys could find us on youtube so make sure to check us out but i'm really excited to interview our guest today timor can you please introduce our guest yeah so like arthur said we have someone very special joining today avi flambaum is a lifelong educator who is a co-founder of flatiron academy which he grew to thousands of students and flatiron was acquired by wework a few years ago Avi also built several companies before he started Flatiron. And on the, app, on the podcast, he's going to go in on how he taught himself how to code and why he decided to start Flatiron and teach thousands of people to learn the skill as well. The reason Avi is close to my heart is that in 2013, when not a lot of people knew about coding boot camps, I tried to learn how to code and I gave up twice. And then one of Arthur's and Ruben's co-workers who was doing investment banking, his name is Adam Waxman. He quit his job. He disappeared for six months. And then he ended up getting a job as a software engineer at a startup in New York. And when I looked at his LinkedIn, it said that he did Flatiron in New York. And that was back in 2013. And I didn't know what boot camps were. I didn't know what Flatiron was. So I called Adam and I spoke to him and he told me about the good work that Flatiron is doing. And Right away, I went on their website, started taking their prep courses, and I ended up moving out to the West Coast to do a different bootcamp because Flatiron wasn't out in San Francisco. But if it wasn't for Flatiron, I don't know if I would be here today. So I'm very honored to speak to Avi today. 
Before we begin, I just want to say welcome, Avi. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This this is fun. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and I mean, Flatiron, you, everything that you've done is, is also near to my heart because I remember when you know, Jack Altman was in Flatiron School as well, and he was giving me tips when I was working with Archer in Atlanta, and he just like really inspired me. Now he's gone on to be a founder himself with Lattice and things like that. So, you know, you started off on your own and now you've been acquired. So how does it feel to be a bootcamp that's been acquired that's now expanding aggressively? and really making waves in the education space. You know, Adam and I, my co-founder, we weren't looking to get acquired. We really love this job. You know, we think about kind of like the four Ps of like life. You need a purpose, you need people, you need a product, and you need profit. You know, we knew our purpose. We wanted to enable people to pursue a better life through education. And, you know, we wanted to find people who believed in that mission, believed in that purpose. We built the school to represent the product that was going to allow people to do that. And we had gotten into profitability and we really, you know, we're happy running the school forever. We love our job. What happens is that you can't necessarily grow at that point. We never wanted to take the risk of, you know, opening up a campus and missing some enrollments. And then, you know, if that happens, we suddenly go bankrupt. And now all of our students, all of our alumni are kind of, they've lost something. Mm -hmm. So we had randomly met Adam Newman and started talking to him about kind of how we see the world and how we think about community, how we think about people's lives and how the world is changing. And there was just such a cultural alignment and such a vision, a shared vision of the future that it really made sense. And as we kind of met the WeWork team, there was so much alignment there. And we knew that by joining WeWork, we were going to start being able to grow. And ultimately, you know, that's kind of the point is to enable more and more people to gain these kinds of skills and to pursue a life they actually love through education. So it's been pretty exciting since joining WeWork, being able to open up campuses, teach more people, develop new vocations, new models, and new formats. Yeah, yeah. No. And, and, and in the pre-chat, you mentioned that in the beginning, a lot of the bootcamps that launched, they were full-time immersive, which meant that someone who wanted to learn how to code would have to take three months out of their life, not work, save up enough money, and go through the programs, which in a way prevented majority of people from actually attending. And now Flatiron is able to offer various options to people from different backgrounds, different economic like standings. Can you share more about the types of initiatives that you're doing now and how people and why people should learn about it? Yeah. So I think, you know, when people talk about access and education, they generally talk about it in terms of financials. So is this affordable? Can I afford this? But I think that there's so much more that goes into access. It's, I think pacing is a big part of access. I think everyone can and should learn how to code. I don't know if everyone can do it in 15 weeks. And we have a pretty rigorous admissions process for our 15-week program because we want to make sure that if we admit you to that, you are actually going to succeed in that. But you know, if someone's trying to change their life and double their income and learn how to code and do something they love, and it takes them you know, 14 months, there should be a format for that also. Yeah. So, you know, I think about pacing a lot and we have an online program that is self-paced, which allows you to basically learn this and pursue mastery at your own time. It allows you to have a job, to have a, you know, have a family, take care of your family. And that allows, that creates more access too. It also means that you don't have to be in New York and that we can create, you know, as we open up new campuses all across WeWorks, that's also allowing people to access this kind of education. We've partnered with Opportunity Hub in Atlanta to create a million dollars in scholarships there. We partnered with Facebook in Houston to create, I think, a million dollars in scholarships in Houston and Citigroup in London for another you know, million pounds in scholarships. We're constantly trying to both reduce the financial burden that people need in order to take these classes, but also think about 
different kinds of formats, a structured online program, a self-paced online program, nights and weekends courses. I think that's really what creates access is understanding that education should mold and flex to the needs of the student, which even in the, in the, in the educational time of one student's journey, that might change. We've had students in the immersive in New York who have a death in the family and they have to go home. And is, instead of just having to drop out of Flatiron School, we can move them to the online program so they can keep on learning and then, then they can come back to the in-person experience. And being able to fluidly move between these formats of education, I think, is the future. Yeah. Because as a country, we generally think of education as a one-size-fits-all solution. And I remember when you know, we invented the boot camp model, people were like, boot camp is the college killer. I never understood that. Because as long as we think in terms of one-size-fits-all solutions in education, we end up with one-size-fits-some and disenfranchises everyone else. Mm. And we have to get used to this idea that it's, there's not a holy grail of education. There's going to be different kinds of programs and formats that are going to work for different kinds of people. And we need to invest in those and encourage them. We need to stop thinking them as alternatives to education, yeah. but rather education in itself. I love it. I love it. And then something else that people may not know about with respect to access is that you all have an access lab as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So after the acquisition, Adam Newman said that we have to start, uh, he knew about, we used to partner with New York City to create free programs for underrepresented demographics in New York, low-income New Yorkers, you know, 18 to 24-year-olds without college degrees. We did a cohort once with uh, basically foreign-born New Yorkers. And those were always free courses that were sponsored by the city. But as you know, we kind of grew, those courses became harder and harder for us to administer with the city. And Adam Newman asked if we were planning on partnering with them again. And we said, we're not sure. It's you know, difficult working with local governments. But he was like, stop. We're going to give you some money. You're going to start a program right away. Just make it totally free for everyone. And that's Access Labs. It's a campus in Dumbo. It is for New Yorkers that make less than 35 grand a year. The program is entirely free. We even partnered with a company called 2U that we work really closely with on creating apprenticeships for all those students. So I think in our first class that graduated Access Labs on the first day, 10 of them had internships at wow. 2U, which is actually right across the street from their campus. Yeah. And uh, you know, seeing those kinds of companies like 2U, like City in London, create these apprenticeships and these internships also is creating more access because you need pathways, right? You need yeah. to create what happens next. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And and I know, you know, now that you're a partner with WeWork, you also talked about the concept of a, of a global campus. So can you touch a little bit more about like a global campus and the things that are offered in colleges that people traditionally think about when they think about education and how you all are thinking about just a global campus? You know, when I think about a campus experience, sure, there's the classes you're taking and the friends you're making. But what's really nice about kind of walking around a campus is all of the other things and the spontaneity of, you know, I was, I'm walking back from class and I see a poster about, someone giving a lecture about, you know, blockchain and Kurt Vonnegut. And, you know, that seems interesting. So I'm going to go to that. And there's kind of this nice serendipity of all these other things that happen on campuses that weren't really the reason why you were there, but end up becoming really valuable to you. And, you know, with WeWork and Meetup and, you know, that acquisition, we can start surfacing the Meetup API and the meetups that are occurring related to the vocations and topics that you're studying. And, you know, so that when you're going to Flatiron School in D.C., you can see that there are meetups about data science and programming and, you know, JavaScript Weekly is going to be there. And that also creates this campus environment so that the WeWork spaces become so much more activated and alive. And it feels like, you know, not just an office space, but now there's all these events. There's a school there. There are students coming in and out. And that kind of vibrancy is something I'm so excited about. And that's what we talk about a lot 
of a global campus. Yeah, no, I think that's super exciting. And, and thinking about things globally, you know, you start thinking about languages. And like you talked to a, a question we get a lot is like, what language should I study? And, you know, there's JavaScript, there's Ruby. So how do you think about language and globalization and, and things like that? And, yeah, you know, and which one to, to start learning for beginners? Because yeah. beginners always want to know which, what, what should they start learning first? Yeah. So I guess my first piece of advice is, for all beginners is pick a language and just stick with it. The thing I find most is that they jump around a lot. They'll start with JavaScript and you know they're learning JavaScript for a month and it gets hard and they're like, oh, JavaScript's not good. I'm going to start learning Python. And then they learn you know Python for a month and it gets hard and then they switch again and you just got to stick with it. But ultimately, I think programming languages are just tools and tools are always invented with values. You know, you think about there's a cliche or Asimov's law that all you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. So tools influence the way you think and a hammer clearly values, you know, it's heavy on the top. It's got a long shaft. It wants you to bang in nails. Ruby was invented as its value was explicit by Matz, the, the Japanese program that created the language. He said that he wanted to make, he wanted to design a language that made programmers happy. So Ruby values you, the programmer, over the machine. You know, there's a language called Erlang that was invented by Ericsson in the 80s, and it was invented for massively parallel job processing because it wanted, they wanted to use it for telephone switch operators. So, you know, 10,000 phone calls at once. And that's what they invented the language for. And in fact, WhatsApp uses Erlang for a similar kind of paradigm because there's so many events occurring on the WhatsApp platform at once. Erlang was a great choice. Ruby values you, the programmer. It wants you to be happy. And I think learning to code is hard. It's not impossible. But one thing that makes it lovable and delightful is using a language that actually wants you to be happy. That's such a kind of counterintuitive reason to design a programming language that focuses on you, the programmer, over the machine. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I see those kinds of values like everywhere in the language in the sense that another value in Ruby is that there's a, there are a lot of different ways to do the exact same thing. And that's not an intuitive thing for languages like in Python one of the values is there should be one and preferably only one obvious way to do something. So it's exact opposite. And Matt's was asked once at a conference, why would you invent a language with so many different ways to do the exact same thing? And he said that he wanted to make Ruby users free. He wanted to give them the freedom to choose because people are different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, that isn't, that's not even about programming. Like I think as, you know, as all humans, like one thing we all share is that we, we want to be free. Yeah. And inherent in freedom is the ability to choose. Yeah. And making a choice is never about right or wrong or better or worse. It's about what you want, what's right for me. Yeah. And we are allowed to be different and our differences should be celebrated. You know, inherent in innovation is people doing things differently. In an homogenous culture where everyone does things the exact same way, we are by definition not innovating. And when I look at the Ruby the Ruby community, because it was always, it's a niche community. Like Ruby, even with Ruby on Rails, it was never that popular. Like Java, you know, PHP, those languages are so much bigger. But the amount of innovation that has come from the Ruby community is just giant. You know, Ruby on Rails and Bundler and dependency management and GitHub. Mm -hmm. And the only way I can explain it is that inherent in the tool's value is this idea that you are allowed to be different. Yeah. And if the tool is telling you that you're allowed to be different, you're going to try some weird stuff. And yeah. some of that weird stuff is going to work and that's going to be innovation. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's just such a, an amazing thing to feel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why we still teach Ruby. I still think Ruby's the language of startups, like every, you know, from Airbnb to GitHub to Shopify, Twitter. But, you know, we are also happy, like we love teaching JavaScript and I love React and you know there are so many they're all just tools and once you learn one of them it's kind of easy to move around between them yeah um, yeah that's, 
I think so when I was learning how to code, Ruby was one of the first languages I learned. And then I ended up learning HTML, CSS. Later on, I learned JavaScript. I think what gets a lot of our listeners stuck is that there are a lot of like, because there are so many choices in terms of tutorials, in terms of languages that someone can take online, they feel very overwhelmed because they don't know which path will actually end up leading them to the next step and the next step and eventually getting a job. In your opinion, if someone is listening today who has this burning desire to start learning how to code, kind of what is the playbook for them to get started? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if they go to flatironschool.com, we have a lot of free courses that kind of put you on that path. And, you know, the Flatiron logo is these two slashes. People ask me a lot of times why, like, what's up with that? And, you know, in programming, there's something called a protocol operator. So HTTP colon slash slash, then flatironschool.com. What that operator is, is saying that the way to get to the thing on the right, flatironschool.com, is through the thing on the left. Because there are other protocols like SSH and FTP and SMTP. Mm-hmm. So you could say like SSH colon slash slash flatironschool.com, which would be saying, now I want to get to Flatiron School through the secure shells host. And that is a way. Mm-hmm. Flatiron School is a way to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to use the slashes as to show people that this is a path. Yeah. This is a way. What a great um, answer. Yeah. And for me, when I... Like speaking about Adam again, when I went on your website in 2013 or 14, you didn't have the official bootcamp prep, which I think is also free now. I think you just laid out literally like a page with links and it said, do 20 hours of this, 20 hours of HTML. And I think having that list in front of me at least gave me this belief that if I just do what you told me to do and I didn't have to go out and source tutorials, I just followed the list and most of the links were free. Then I knew by the end of it, I would be two steps forward. I would take two steps forward towards my end goal. And I think it's, it's very critical for a lot of people to actually have that in place. Can you talk a little bit about the admissions process for Flatiron? What kind of qualities do you look for in students? Sure. And how does someone prepare to get accepted into your school? Sure. Actually, I'll tell you a funny thing about what the thing you're... So that was called our pre-work. And mm-hmm. what early in the school, we put up a website called prework.flatironschool.com, which was basically this set of links and resources that we wanted that we thought would be good for people to do in order. Mm-hmm. And I remember in, you know, in the beginning of the school, it was really just me teaching and I would get in at like six in the morning and prepare the day's lecture. And I was just making up, I was, I was going along. And I remember it was the first day of our, of our second or third semester. And my co-founder, Adam, you know, I'm like, I was there like six in the morning and I'm setting up the desks and all the, you know, getting everything ready. And he comes up to me and he's like, Hey, have you updated the pre-work yet? <laughs> and it's like still a running joke because at that moment, the last thing I was thinking about was updating that pre-work. And now, you know, but uh, that's what he was thinking about at that moment. And uh, it's still like kind of a joke that we, you know, whenever one of us is really stressed out about something else, I'll like, we'll ask each other like, hey, what about the pre-work? <laughs> that's um, funny. The admissions process. Yeah. So the admissions process, you know, Adam and I, thought a lot about what we were looking for. And we wanted, we wanted passion from people. You know, there are people that want to learn how to code because they think they have a great idea and they're going to, you know, if they just knew how to program, they're going to make a billion dollars. And I think that the gap between knowing how to code and being able to make a billion dollars is pretty wide. And I never wanted people to be disappointed. I wanted them to be learning this because they loved it. Mm-hmm. So we look for people that are really passionate about this craft. And then we look for culture in the sense that we knew that we were going to be spending a lot of time with these students and they were spending a lot of time with each other. And we just wanted to create a really diverse set of perspectives, of backgrounds so that the class felt fun 
that people could learn from each other and that they weren't all homogenous. So that's kind of what we look for in culture. And then we look for aptitude because it's really important to us that if someone enrolls in the school, they're going to be able to succeed. Mm-hmm. And as I said, that I do think everyone can and should learn how to code. I just don't know if everyone could do it in exactly 15 weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's important to us that when we admit a student, we have a high degree of certainty that they're going to succeed in this format because I never, ever wanted to sell someone something that they couldn't use. Yeah. Yeah. And now you have different formats. What are the differences between taking something online or in person or something that's part time? Because we get that question a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in-person is rigorous. It's obviously, it moves very fast. You have to be willing to come in every day. One thing I would recommend to people that are thinking about going to an immersive in-person program is that they should get used to studying. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people haven't learned something for a long time, and it's kind of like a marathon. And imagine if you haven't been running and then you wake up one day and you try to run 10 miles. It's going to be rough. It's good analogy. You want to start learning in a habitual fashion before an immersive experience that expects you to be in class for 10 hours a day. So, you know, start thinking about like building up that muscle, right? Of like, I'm studying an hour a day. I'm focused for two hours a day and make that a habit. Don't wait for motivation. Just commit to the habit, just like learning how to run or exercising. You won't feel progress right away. And that's kind of like the, the hard thing about change is that it happens slowly. In the beginning, it's almost imperceptible. So you think you're not making progress and then you quit. But you are, and you have to remove the idea of measuring progress early on and just commit to the habit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what I think about an in-person experience is that you better be ready to learn for 10 hours a day and have everything else in your life organized for that. Like we give students a letter to send to their friends and family <laughs> that explains like, hey, I might disappear for three or four months. And yeah. it's not because I don't love you. It's because I'm trying to invest in my future and I will see you at the other end. Yeah. No, I think that's um, And then online, it requires a lot of discipline because in person, our instructors are going to make sure you show up and you're learning and you're studying and we get to interact with you every day and coach you and talk to you about your learning process and how you're interacting with other students. Online, it's harder to make that connection. So you have to be disciplined. You have to be doing it yourself. We have educational coaches that work with our students online, you know, every meet with them once a week to talk to them about what are their blockers? Where are they learning from? You know, how are you making progress? How are you feeling about this process that helps people motivated, that helps them learn the kind of the meta skill of learning how to learn. And so online is great for that. And then with a structured program online, it's kind of similar to the bootcamp, but but it's it's more at your own time. So we expect in a part-time online program, you to put in 20 to 30 hours a week, but it doesn't need to be from nine to 4 p.m. every day. Right. It can be, you know, wake up at six in the morning and do two hours before work and then do two hours after work. So you're still going to put in 20 to 30 hours a week in a part time online program, but it's up to you to choose when that fits into your life, which also makes it accessible and more flexible for you. And then another thing we've been doing as we've expanded in WeWork is actually starting to have our online students meeting in person for study groups. So that, you know, we'll find like in Miami that we have 30 students and we'll group them together and we'll tell them, hey, you guys should meet at this WeWork you know, on Wednesday night, and we will remote in an instructor to facilitate your study group. So they'll find a conference room in WeWork, and one of our online instructors will basically pop in and be on the video screen there and help the students facilitate them studying together. Yeah. Because I love that blending of in-person and online. You know, Most educational providers are really kind of 
choose either we're an online program or we're an in-person program. And that is like blending those two things together so that the students can make connections in person that can then they can carry over online, I think creates like a real sense of a community. And, you know, education is inherently a social endeavor. You're always learning from someone else. So constantly trying to figure out a way to embed that community into the program so that the online program feels more of like an online campus that also meets up in person. I think that's really like so much fun and so delightful. And do you mind covering like the different programs that you guys are now offering? Because you started out with software engineering, but now you're actually expanding to other areas. And it's pretty exciting that now you like if you're if you find out that you're not good at coding, there's other alternatives you could pursue to break into tech. So what are some of the other programs people could sign up for at Flatiron? Yep. So right now, so we have our software engineering immersive, which is the in-person bootcamp. We have the self-paced online program, the part-time online program, and the full-time online program. And then we just launched, like I think six months ago, our data science program, which we started with in-person. It's easier to control quality as we develop these new vocations in person. And now we're launching our online data science program in kind of the exact same spread of formats. So there'll be a self-paced, a full-time online, and a part-time online. And you know what we're always looking for are the best instructors and the best teachers to teach these vocations. So as we meet you know, new people that are you know, experts at UI or UX and have developed an amazing curriculum, we want to bring them in so that they can develop and take that, you know, that love and that passion of that craft and create a course in the Flatiron platform for that. So things I'm interested in are UI and UX and product management. Digital marketing, I think, is great. Cybersecurity and information security. Data analytics. Yep. All those kinds of things. I mean, all, you know, it's so easy to think of all the jobs that get automated from technology and it's almost impossible to conceive of the jobs that are created by them. But I just know that all the new jobs in the future are going to be tech enabled. And those are the kinds of things we want to teach. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the future of jobs and tech enabled jobs, so there's already a, like a massive labor shift happening and it's only, only going to accelerate in the next like decade. Kind of what is your view on the future of jobs and what skill sets are going to be in demand and what should people be paying attention to to prepare themselves for that labor shift? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people, the days when you worked at like GE and you did one job for 30 years, I think that's over. The world is just changing too fast and people are going to have, you know, three to seven careers over their lifetime and they're going to have to be able to reinvest in education because nothing you learn today is going to be as relevant in 10 years. And, you know, one thing that Flatiron is really trying to do is not front load education anymore. So it's not like you go to school from zero to 22 and then you never have to learn again, but rather you can constantly reinvest in your education and learn a new skill, whether that's moving horizontally and changing your career or, you know, upskilling yourself and moving vertically and becoming, you know, a leader in your field. But the problem is, is that the traditional educational model of universities can't really facilitate that. And I think we're going to start seeing that companies are going to start building their own internal schools to upskill their employees, to reskill them and help them change and shift into different careers internally within the company, to bring in new people into the company, to you know, retain their talent and actually develop it. And one of, you know, on our team at Flatiron School, one of the things we think a lot about is building talent over buying talent. We want to invest in making people better because every single time that we have to go out and buy some really experienced developer, some really great marketer, it's expensive. And on a long enough timeline with the right educational resources, if you take it seriously and you invest in that and you create apprenticeships and you create internships and you create, you give your employees time to get better, building talent is always going to outperform buying talent. 
And I think we're going to see that trend in, you know, in a ton of companies. In London, for instance, you know, there's something called an apprentice levy in the UK so that companies with a certain amount of payroll have to put money aside into an account that has to be used for apprenticeships. And if they don't spend it on apprenticeships, then they basically the money just goes to the government. And we partnered with an organization in London called uh, White Hat that is helping companies use their apprentice levy, their apprentice tax, in order to create uh, internships and apprenticeships for our students. And I think that we're going to see so much more of that happen because the world is just changing too fast. And these skills and these jobs that are being created, like, you know, 10 years ago, blockchain wasn't a thing. And now there's hundreds of thousands of blockchain jobs. You know, companies are going to need to leverage that kind of skill set and that kind of talent. And the only way to do it is to allow people to invest in education and to give them a pathway through an internship or an apprenticeship to start actually practicing these crafts. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that's a great segue too to go into just kind of like your thoughts about the, the coding bootcamp industry in general. Is it an industry? Because like people out that aren't familiar with vocational schools or that don't pay attention as much to education, they are like, is this going to last? Is it going to go away? Like there's consolidation. Some get shut down, some get bought. Like how do you think about the coding bootcamp space in general? Yeah. I mean, as you know, one of the, if not the first, certainly the, one, the oldest one that still exists. I mean, I never really paid attention to the industry that much. Like I knew what I wanted to be doing. Like I loved technology and I taught myself how to code. And when I started the school, you know, it occurred to me that there are basically only two ways to get these kinds of skills. You can teach yourself like I did, which is a trial by fire where you're banging your hands against the wall and, you know, you just got to keep on going. And most people can't do that. And that doesn't mean that they're bad or, or, or worse than me. It just means that they just learn differently. Or you can get a CS degree, and there's so many diversity problems there. If you've already went to college, you can't go back to college and get a CS degree. And I wanted to create another way for people to get this, and I think that's where the boot camp industry was born out of, was this idea of there has to be other ways to get these kinds of skills. And then all of a sudden, everyone had a coding boot camp. And uh, you know, I think the quality there varies a ton. You know, There's Turing School in Denver with Jeff Kazmir, and I love him. He's an unbelievable educator. He's been doing this since the beginning also. But in terms of the consolidation, I mean, you know, I think that what happened basically was after four or five years, a lot of the people that started coding boot camps realized that it was not a get rich quick scheme and they didn't know what to do with the business they built. And, you know, there had to be a roll up at some point. And we've seen that kind of thing happen in other kind of industries that had, you know, a plethora of copycats just on the startup. But I don't think this industry is going away at all. I think that we're going to continue seeing trends in terms of consolidation. And I think that the you know, the really great players in this, the really quality educational institutions are going to keep on growing and the rest of them are going to get shaken out. Yeah. yeah. And there's and, uh, been some, some new players that have come out as well that are doing a new format around like income share agreements. Can you talk a little bit about like your thoughts on that too? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think income share agreements are an interesting model. They help solve that financial access problem in any educational model. And they do that without needing to get accredited for Pell Grants or student loans or federal aid and things like that. Um, at the same time, though, I think a lot of these income share agreements, you know, some of the rates are usurious in the sense that you know, if you're coming from a low-income background and you're making less than thirty-five grand a year, and then you get even a job, let's say, of $70,000 after a six-month program, and now suddenly you're on the hook for 17 to 20% of your monthly take-home cash after taxes, that is debilitating to someone because what happened was that they were, you know, at a low income and they probably didn't have a lot of savings. And then they had to spend, you know, three to six months learning and job searching. And they finally got the job. And now suddenly, 
you know, four or $500 out of their paycheck every month is going to this, you know, income share agreement. And I think that rather than thinking in terms of percentages, income share agreements need to change to a cap. So you're not trying to get paid back as quickly as possible over two years, which again, I think is debilitating to the very people you were trying to serve and make access and give access to, but rather, you know, cap it at $200 a month of a repayment and have that repayment happen for the next six years or, you know, create tiers so that at, you know, $60,000, your repayment is 6%. Once you're making six figures, maybe it goes up to 11% and give people time to pay these things back. Because I think as these income share agreements students, you know, once we have two, three years of data, I think we're going to start seeing that the financial burden on them paying these things back is going to be crippling. Yeah. And um, one of the things that people ask us is like, what bootcamp should I do? And clearly, like a lot of people who go on course report and other websites, they realize that every bootcamp now has a five-star rating. So it's not very helpful. But uh, what we've noticed is that a lot of bootcamps are now using like third parties to release their outcomes data. And I know Flatiron is one of the leaders in doing like internal audits by third parties. Can you provide more context around uh, the outcomes of your students? And then also like how does someone should approach choosing a, a school? Yeah. So, um, you know, my co-founder, Adam, was, you know, we come from very different backgrounds. Adam went to Cornell, then he went to a Harvard Business School. And when he graduated Harvard Business School, he realized he still didn't really know how to do anything. <laughs> and uh, so he took like an entry-level sales job to learn how to sell. It's a good thing. And, um, you know, I taught myself how to code. I went to University of Wisconsin. I dropped out after a year. I was majoring in like creative writing and film. And you know, I always had this skill and there was kind of like, that's nice little marriage of like these two people with different backgrounds. And what Adam really wanted was to create accountability and transparency in education. And, you know, in the beginning we started releasing, I think we were really the first school potentially in history that hired a third party, this accounting firm called MFA to audit our placement data and see how our students were doing in jobs afterwards. And if you go to our website on flatironschool.com slash outcomes, you can download our reports where we talk about exactly how our students have been doing. And we have that audited every single year. And then with accountability in education, like two years into the school, what we started doing was saying that if you don't have a job within six months, we'll give you your money back. And we just created a money back guarantee in education. And we said that this was the line that if for whatever reason, if you did the things we told you to do, you kept on coding and you kept on networking and you kept on applying to jobs and if for whatever reason that process didn't work for you, we would give you your money back. And That's we've amazing. given, you know, I don't know exactly how many, but I know that we've given refunds to students that for whatever reason, the process just didn't work for them. Mm-hmm. And we hold ourselves accountable to that. Does yeah. that apply for uh, online programs too? Yep. All of our programs have the exact same terms in terms of we always do outcomes reports for every mm-hmm. campus and the online programs. And then we have the money back guarantee, the job guarantee for all our programs too. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. And then speaking of like, you know, choosing things, like some people still do like massive open online courses and nano degrees and like things like that. Like what are your thoughts about like, you know, online courses, credentials in general, you know, things like that? Yeah. I always thought the word nano degree was really funny because it just basically means a very little thing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that what you really are looking for as a student when you're looking at these programs is who are the people behind the school, right? Who are the instructors? Can you talk to them? Can you ask the school about their graduation rates? Can you ask them questions like, what happens if I you know, fall behind? And you want to hear 
answers. You want to hear a plan there because if they say something like, you know, oh, don't worry, you're not going to fall behind. I think they're trying to scam you. Like they're trying to get you in there so that they can get money and they're not really necessarily invested in making sure that you succeed. So you want to really just talk to the schools, I think, and the people behind them. And I think we know what you said about there was just actually one of our students in Houston just did a study of exactly that on a course report. Every school is a 4.8. So those reviews are suddenly not meaningful because somehow they're all amazing. And I think that, you know, when you dig a little deeper and you go to Reddit um, and you read some, you know, actual student stories, I think you start seeing that there are cracks. And again, like what I would recommend to students is that one, find the school whose values you share, right? This shouldn't be just about the quickest way that I can get a job, right? Anyone, you know, there's, there's a race to the bottom there where you'll have boot camps that are like, nine weeks, eight weeks, you know, we're cheaper, we're cheaper. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it's just like, you know, six minute abs, five minute abs. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I think you want to find the school that whose culture and values match with, with you. And then you want to make sure that the people behind the school are serious. Yeah. And the way you vet that is by asking them hard questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about your campuses because you started in New York and now you're in Atlanta, Houston, and UK, right? In London now. Yep. And potentially uh, many more coming at WeWorks around the US. So just, can you talk about like some of the tech ecosystems outside the well-known ones, like San Francisco and New York? And what do you see in terms of job potential industries, tech companies that are in those hubs that people should pay attention to? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is um, one, I, I think that every company is a tech company, whether they realize it or not. So I can't imagine, I just can't think of a company that does not have an engineering department, that doesn't have a design department, that doesn't have a digital marketing department. And I think that you see kind of different industries in different areas. Like, you know, DC is obviously very data centric. It's very, you know, political, like politics is a a huge industry there. You see a lot of kind of military contracts and things like that. In Atlanta, you're seeing a lot of kind of really kind of big corporations like, you know, like Coca-Cola. And um, so there are kind of like different like areas like, you know, New York, there's finance, there's, you know, fashion, there's marketing, there's advertising. But for the most part, you can find a jobs or programmer anywhere. And like, you know, as we moved online, we started seeing that it was almost easier to get a job in some of these smaller places because there's less people, there's still demand for talent, there's less competition. So it's it's actually kind of a little bit easier if you're trying to get a job in, you know, Salt Lake City, right, in Utah, which has also got a giant, you know, tech scene. Um, you know, in Houston, there's energy companies there that are really like desperate for this kind of talent. So wherever you are, really, I think that if you love these kinds of skills and you're good at this vocation, I think you're not going to have a hard time getting a job. Yeah. And so right right now, uh, Flatiron has offline immersive programs in which locations? So we have our we have two campuses in New York. We have Access Labs in Dumbo. We have Flatiron School, which was our, our first campus. We have D.C. We have Houston. We just opened up in Atlanta. And we have London and, uh, you know, we are trying to make sure that as we open up new campuses and new cities, we find the right people in those markets to lead those campuses. We want great instructors. Um, and what we've been doing actually right now is basically taking all of our lead instructors from New York and moving them into these campuses for the first, you know, three to six months. That way, as we hire teachers there, our culture, our pedagogy is, you know, being imported. Um, so to make sure that like all the new teachers, like it's so important for us as we grow to maintain our culture and our, our commitment to quality and our pedagogy of how we teach. Yeah. And, and so you, I see you all have a campus internationally, you know, given that 
Breaking Your Stars has an audience that's in 50 countries. You know, A-Heroes who does our filming, they're in Brazil. So a lot of people from Brazil want to learn how to code. How are you thinking about training people internationally? Is that something that's going to be a focus? Have you given that we work as a global company? Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing I think about with education a lot is, you know, when I went to one reason I went to University of Wisconsin was because I grew up in New York and I, I, I loved the city and I knew I was going to live there my whole life, but I wanted to see a different part of the world. And when I went to Wisconsin, I lived in, in a state dorm and, you know, I met all these kids that grew up in Wisconsin and then they went to school in Wisconsin and then they got a job in Wisconsin and they've never left Wisconsin. And, you know, I think that we need to get people moving around more because as long as people sit in one place and they think that this is the world and it looks exactly like this and they're always going to be scared of everything that is not familiar to them. And there is just no such thing as foreign. If you move around, you're going to meet that people are people everywhere yeah. and they all have a heart and they all value the same things you do. And there's nothing to be scared of. And there's so much of a movement right now to convince you that, you know, you have enemies and these people hate you and they're not like you. And if you just actually went to that place and you met those people, you would find that for the most part, they just want the exact same things you do. They want to support themselves. They want to do something they love. They want to support their families. They want to have fun. And there's really so little to be scared of from each other. And I think there's so many people in the world trying to convince you to be scared of all these foreigners. And I just don't know what that means. Like, yeah. we're just all humans on a small, you know, pale blue dot. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about teaching internationally, I think that what's important to us is that we understand that culture is different in different places and we have to adapt to whatever locale we're in. And, you know, we don't take for granted that what works in New York is going to work in Miami or what's going to work in Atlanta and Houston. And that's why it's really important to us that we engage with a local community there. So, you know, working with Opportunity Hub in Atlanta, working in, uh, you know, in London with, um, you know, color and tech and getting into these communities and understanding who are the people there that are inspired, that are great, that can teach us about what is going to be effective in these new places because we never pretend to think that we understand what people are like everywhere. We want to get to know them. We want to bring in that kind of insight into our family. Yeah. Speaking of like your background and creative writing and film and your thoughts on like people getting to know each other and, and inspiring them, you know, what are your thoughts about storytelling, film and that power and its role in, you know, education, the future of work and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I, always loved telling stories. One of the reasons why I learned how to code was because I wanted to be a writer and uh, I got rejected from my literary magazine in high school. And I said, I was just going to make my own website <laughs> and just put my stories online because I didn't need your silly magazine anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that one thing that unites all of us is that we tell each other stories like throughout centuries, we pass them down that that's what inspires us, that what that's what makes us believe in, you know, humanity that is larger than us. Yep. Um, and uh, I think storytelling is one of like the best skills to be good at, you know, communication, understanding how to take something and put it into a narrative. And actually one of the things we do in, in the school and one of our, you know, kind of our pedagogy is that we want to tell you stories about code. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about like how the internet works, you know, we talk a lot about like Tesla and inventing wireless communication. And we talk about, you know, what communication, the history of communication throughout time, uh, when telecommunication got invented. We talk about, you know, how object orientation was created in XPARC. And, you know, like those narratives are, I think, what bind us together and what keep us connected to something larger than ourselves and to, to this present moment. And uh, it's just, you know, it's fun being able to teach through through storytelling. And I think that 
you know, even when I think about like product design or building a product, what I'm really trying to do is create a story out of it. Yeah. Right. And think about like, how is the person that's using this? Like, who are they? And, and, and how does this fit into their life? And what narrative am I telling myself about who they are and why they're using this or what their needs are or what value they're looking for? Because like that is atmosphere, atmosphere. Everyone is a, everyone is in a narrative of their own life and you want to understand how the things you're making are going to add value to that narrative. Yeah. 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 And what about yourself? So you mentioned that you learn how to code, but can you take us back to like, how old were you? What was that experience like? And what made you get started to learn uh, out of everything else that you could have been doing when you were Yeah. Little? So my mom was a teacher and uh, after school, she would tutor kids and I would have to just basically wait in you know the school building and no one was there and the school had one computer and uh, I would play on it. It was like a DOS computer and had this game called Nibbles, which was like, you know, you're a snake and you eat these blocks and the snake gets bigger and you can't ever like run into yourself. And, you know, after a while, you kind of learn like how to move in around in that game so that you don't lose. And I opened up the source code and, you know, I'd see these kind of variables like speed equals 10. And I think to myself, what if I made it 100 and suddenly the game was faster? And then I started, you know, changing more and more about the game's code and the game would get different. And, uh, you know, that was just kind of what I did for fun when my mom was tutoring and then the internet came out and I thought like it was going to be a big deal <laughs> and I wanted to have an impact in the world. And I started teaching myself how to code. I would go to Barnes and Nobles and I would, you know, sit in the stacks and I would just read a programming book and I would come back the next day and continue reading where I left off. And that's what I just did after school once I got a little bit older. And then I realized that you could rip the CD out of the back of the book uh, and just leave with that because computer books are pretty expensive and we didn't have many, you know, we couldn't afford those. So I just would steal the CD and then I would get to school early and I would load the CD into a computer in the library and I would read the PDF version of the book. And that's kind of how I would teach myself. And then as the internet became a little more mature, you had these websites like WebMonkey that would also start, you know, teaching these things. And what year was this? I think it was like... 94, 93, mm -hmm. when I first started with like QBasic and basic. And then like around 95, 96 was when I got really serious about the internet. 98 mm -hmm. was like HTML, I remember. And then throughout high school, I got like more and more serious about like backend languages like PHP and ASP and databases. And then when I was 16, I had my first job at a startup called cityfeed.com. I was like wow. a summer job. That was fun. And, uh, then, uh, I just kept, I mean, I kept on doing it. Like yeah. it was always what yeah. I wanted to learn. And you yeah. Know, so I had a question for you because nowadays, I think it's it hasn't been a better time for you to start learning how to code. But back uh, in in the 90s, like outside of the books, like what kind of tooling was out there? Because like right now, if you want to build a website, you have Rails or you have React, you have a lot of tools. What kind of tools existed back then for developers? Yeah, I remember when CSS came out. Like there was HTML and you would, you know, inline style, you know, like, you know, just font, whatever. And then I remember when CSS came out, I remember when Perl was used for CGI and uh, it was harder. Like, uh, you know, it is programming has gotten easier and easier and easier. There's so many like AWS. Oh, my God, that's un unbelievable. <laughs> like just fire up a server and get a database for free. And, you know, so it's gotten way easier and there's so much better, so much more developer tooling from, you know, debuggers and, you know, better text editors and things like that. Back then, it was kind of like, you know, it was almost a little easier because there was less choices. But again, like I think as a beginner, you don't you want to just constrain your thinking. Don't worry about all the choices. Just use one thing. Sublime is great. Atom is great. VS Code. The amount of times people ask me about what text editor they should use, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, like I used to, you know, write and like text edit. Like mm -hmm. and uh, 
yeah, it's, it's been interesting seeing all of these technologies kind of happen. You know, I remember when XML came out, that was really exciting with RSS. But it's, yeah, it's, just, it's fun watching all of the, it's fun having been around long enough to see the evolution of both the technologies and how we learn them and how we, and the tooling yeah. around them. Yeah. So if you were starting to learn like all over again in 2018, let's say you were like in your teens, like what would you do and how would you learn to code? Yeah. You know, I think that uh, it's important when you're younger because you're not necessarily like, you're not going to have the discipline to do it for the craft itself. So you want to kind of find something that you like doing and figure out a way to program around it. And like, you know, I remember like one thing that was really nice about MySpace was that you could make, you could customize your profile, which meant that a lot of people ended up learning HTML and CSS. And we need more games like that. We need more like low commitment ways for people to get exposed to code. And I think like Minecraft, for instance, oh, yeah. is, you know, a great way to like get into programming. If you love Minecraft and, you know, start thinking about Java and making mods. If you like video games, you know, like start thinking about Unity and things like that. So that, you know, the younger you are, the more you want to really think about how can I use code to do the things I like doing that aren't code necessarily, like, you know, music production, things like that. The older you get, the more that you should kind of detach from like, why is this useful to me to just realizing that what programming to me is or code, it's, it's a medium with which to model phenomena. It's just an expression like, you know, you don't learn to read and write so that you can write poetry or so that you could write, you know, a memo or, you know, a business plan. You learn to read and write so that you can express yourself through that medium. Mm-hmm. And you, that expression is going to let you do a million things from writing an email to a thank you note to a business plan to a story. And that's how you want to approach code. You want to stop thinking about as like, what am I going to do with this? But rather realize that you can do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that's a great mindset. And um, I think you touched on people getting older and, or just the older generation. And we get a lot of listeners asking if it's too late for them to learn how to code or like, you know, how does it feel? Like, is it going to be weird if I'm like 40, 50 years old transitioning into the tech sector? Like, and people are working longer. What are your thoughts about that? What's your message to them? Yeah. I mean, we've had students, you know, well into their fifties l- learn these kinds of skills and, and get a job. You know, when it comes to the job hunt, you know, people are really worried about ageism. And the thing is, is that it's not that you're, it's not that you've never worked before. You have experience, right? And you've, you know, might've been a manager or you might've had of industry experience. And if you can find the company that's going to value the fact that you're not, you know, 22 and that you've had a job and you have you know, industry experience. So you understand energy or oil and now you're, oh, and now you can code. That's going to be amazing because you're going to understand the problem domain so much better. And, you know, it's never too late to learn things. And, you know, even when I first started teaching like eight years ago, people were like, I'm getting into this so late. Like Google's already invented. Everything cool isn't very <laughs> invented. But, you know, one thing I see in all technologists is, you know, I mean, Alan Kay says that the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Yep that the future is always bigger than the past. That's what we have to believe is that the future is always coming and it's never, ever too late to be a part of it. And you don't need to have been programming for 20 years to be good at it. Like I wasted so much time in those first 10, 15 years by not having a discipline or a learning process. So watching my students being able to become better programmers than me in a shorter amount of time, do not believe that narrative that you need to start this at 11 to be really good. I promise you, everyone that started programming at 11 for the first 10 years, they sucked at it, but it didn't matter. <laughs> so don't be scared. It's never yeah. too late to learn. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. And this is where we ask you questions and we ask for strategies, resources that our listeners can start implementing today 
in order to take the first step towards their career in tech. Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So this question takes it back to the basics. And imagine you just got dropped in a new city. You don't know anyone. And um, let's assume that your basic needs are taken care of, but you only have $100 and you're trying to spend that $100 to break into tech. So what would you do and how would you spend that 100 bucks? I would just go to meetup.com and see what meetups are around and areas I was interested in. I would email employers in the area, not to ask for a job, but just, you know, hey, I'm in town and I'd love to see what you guys are working on and, you know, hear about what's going on in your company. I'm really interested in it and just do that. I probably wouldn't actually spend the $100. Yeah, I love it. Love it. You also talked about habits and marathons and sprints and things like that. So can you tell us a little bit about your routine and how you, you know, structure your day? I mean, you travel all over the world. You were just in London, you're just back here. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, one thing is I, I try to wake up early. Like, you know, I used to wake up at like 10, 11. Now I wake up at like six in the morning. I try to have a routine of, you know, just habits, like whether it's running or going to the gym or rock climbing and just make sure that, you know, there's some structure to my day because once I actually get to work, everything kind of like it's, it gets a little crazy really quickly. And I try to really think about how I spend my time. Like I, I just want to be as discriminant as possible and towards, you know, what am I reading? What am I watching? You know, people, if you are not consciously choosing what you pay attention to and what you think is important, then someone else is making that choice for you. Like you don't have to care about the Kardashians. You don't like someone convinced you that's important, but you don't need to care about that. <laughs> You should be really thinking about like, does this matter to my life? Is this the, way, the best use of my time? The amount of time people spend doing things that other people told them are important is like obscene to me. Yeah. yeah. And um, one of the questions that comes up a lot is around imposter syndrome and you having um, educated thousands of people into learning how to code. When do you see people struggle with imposter syndrome the most and what advice do you have for them? Yeah. Imposter syndrome is interesting. It's really just a new word for insecurity and everyone is insecure and you just have to kind of get past that. Don't worry about it. Like, I mean, just in fact, admit to yourself, I'm a beginner. I'm not an imposter. I'm just a beginner and I'm totally okay with that. I still consider myself a beginner programmer, so I don't have to worry about being an imposter. You know, I consider myself a beginner teacher, so I don't have to worry about the fact that I don't have a college degree and run a school. (laughs) You know, insecurity is insecurity and it's your self-consciousness and you just have to know that you are everything you wanted to be and you are good enough and stop thinking about what other people are going to think about you and just about what you're what you think about yourself like validation comes from within and there is no you know there is no moment in your life where you're going to be like oh well now because i did this i'm really not an imposter yeah and i think uh taking it back to my days uh doing a coding boot camp i always thought that there were so many more smarter people in my grade and you instantly start thinking that you're the only one who's like falling behind or not grasping certain concepts or you're feeling stupid. But I think it's important also for people to realize that it's just like the natural way of life. When you're starting something new, you've never done it. Ruben and I do Muay Thai. And whenever we drill in the, like every morning when we go to the gym, we feel kind of dumb. We're like, our coach yells at us and yeah. uh, we don't get anything right. But I think it's just a matter of uh, drilling, putting in the work and realizing that other people are not showing it, but they're also feeling the same thing you're feeling. Yeah. I also think that it's so easy in life to confuse talent for experience. Ooh. Like, you, you know, you look at a figure skater and you're like, oh my God, they're so talented. Nope. They just do that every single day, all day. <laughs> um, like it's that, it's just, people aren't spe- like the talent isn't a thing. It's always experience. It's yeah. always discipline. It's always the amount of time they've done it. 
and you're not in their head, so you might not realize that they have the same insecurities you have. And when I started running in New York, there's a phrase in, in New, the New York road running community called my race, my pace. Mm. What other people are doing is doing doesn't matter. And when I run a race in New York, my experience of it is watching 30,000 people run faster than me yep. because the only people I see are the ones in front of me and they're all running faster. What I never do is turn around and look at the three people behind me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just a perspective and you got to control your perspective. Perspective is a superpower. I yeah. love, I love that breakdown. That's super powerful. I think that's going to inspire a lot of people. And speaking of inspiration, who or what, or, you know, inspires you the most? I think, uh, I mean, my, our students, our students, our team, watching them like succeed, watching them like do this hard thing and not give up and continue to believe in themselves. And then like watching their careers grow, watching them give back to the community. And, you know, one of our alums, Vaidehi, writes Space CS on Medium. She wrote a CS post every Monday for a year and it's 52 blog posts and it's an amazing, amazing collection of writing. And watching her do that is like, it's what gets me up. I want to make more of those. Yeah. And then everyone at Flatiron, all the teachers, how committed they are to this mission. Yeah. Yeah. And shout out to Emily and Anna for helping us set this up. Yeah. Um, do you have any other, like, can you just give shout outs to people on your team that yeah. you think are doing incredible work? Because we're all about recognizing people yeah. behind yeah, the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing about perspective is, uh, you know, expressing gratitude and appreciation. It's so easy to think about all the things you don't have and all the things that like are missing. And it's so it's so easy. It's almost as easy to think, to just forget about all the things you do have. So I'm my co-founder, Adam Embar, our COO, Christy Reardon, uh, Rishi, our teacher in London right now, Joe Burgess, our VP of education, Rebecca, Gretchen, Molly. I mean, yeah. Jonas, Lisa, yeah. the whole engineering team. <laughs> yeah. I love them all. I mean, like it's, it's an amazing group of people to be working with. Yeah. Um, and similarly, like when people are watching the film, I mean, we're very grateful for people like Nana, you know, Sydney and Clabber that are helping us with the filming to make sure people have visuals along with this episode. And, um, you know, I think it's important for people to be able to connect and build. And so what's the best way for people to keep in touch with you and, and, and follow what you are doing in the future? Yeah, um, I, I love Twitter. So uh, I'm Avi Flumbam at Twitter. You can always email me, avi at flatironschool.com. I am approachable. I don't know why. Sometimes people are like, I can't, I can't really email him. He's the founder of Flatiron School. <laughs> totally can. I would get back to you when I like, you know, sometimes my inbox gets a little crazy, but on Twitter, you know, just, you know, at me, I'll say hi. But uh, yeah, that's, I think it's the best way to get in touch. Awesome. Yeah. With that for you, yes. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, break in. Let's break in. Yeah. Great. Thanks guys. Yeah, this is awesome. This is so much fun. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.